Inshallah, we're going to be continuing now. So, in this session, we're going to be continuing with the second source of Islamic law, and that is Sunnah, the Sunnah of the Prophet. And if you're following along in the book, it's on page 59. Now, um, uh, as you can see, this is a pretty big book. And I know that the topic is very dense, and there's a lot of information. And the best way to approach this one-day intensive and the information you're learning it here is, you are getting exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different concepts, getting a good bird's-eye view of things, but you're going to need to make personal effort on your own to go back and read these sections, uh, you know, take notes, detailed notes on them. Uh, that's why it's good that you have your workbook, so you could write things alongside this PowerPoint, and also you have paid to take notes in each section in the book that you have right here. Now, in terms of the content of the book, as far as I'm concerned, the, you know, we have until um, uh, we have until about a page, until about a section, um, the, uh, the section unit six, that it has critical material that I'm hoping that we get through. Uh, and that's about halfway through the book, 130 pages in or 150 pages in. Um, and that's, that's the most critical information for me here. Now, we're not going to go through every single page of the book, as you could see, um, you know, because we want to be able to digest, follow along easily. So that's why we're, con we're continuing in this way. Now, like I said, we're going to start this section now. We have until Maghrib, about a half an hour. And in this section here, um, we're going to start off with questions. Some of you said you have questions. So we'll take the questions first, and then we'll go on continuing the sunnah uh, as a second source of law. So who would like to ask a question? Um, who's the one, who, who has a question that they wanted to ask? Yes. Okay. Bismillah. Yes. An actionable plan for what? For memorizing? Yeah. So look, um, Jazakallah khair for the question. We said that the companions would take 10 verses at a time, uh, memorize, learn their guidance, memorize them, and then implement them in their lives. Uh, now the question was, is there this guy that tells us from A to Z how the Qur'an was actually revealed? The answer to this is, we know the order of revelation based on narrations. Based on narr There's books that are about um, uh, uh, compiling Asbab al-Nuzul, the causes of revelation, and also speaking to the timeline of revelation, right? So, but these narrations are not comprehensive. They're not going to tell you when each verse was revealed specifically. Um, what, you know, when each revelation, when each uh, interval of revelation came down. It's going to tell you this surah was revealed before that one, or that surah was revealed after that one, or this surah was revealed as whole, 
or this surah was revealed in Mecca, this surah was revealed in Medina. Uh, this surah has the last verse that was revealed to the Prophet. It contains certain revelations like that, uh, or certain narrations like that. But it will not be clear-cut to tell you from A to Z how each set of verses was revealed. We, I, we don't have it to that point. Yeah. Allahu Uh Yes, go ahead. Alright, how should a Muslim approach when there's conflict between Sharia law and uh, uh, man-made law? Explain. What do you mean? For example. Like in what? Yeah, but still, like, like what? So there's going to be an overlap because like we said in our explanation, there are certain things for individuals to do and then there's certain things for states to decide. There are certain things that are not even in my hand to even think about. Right? As a Muslim, you know, man-made law is never going to tell me, uh, don't pray. Right? Uh, at least the way, unless we lived in like uh, uh, a very oppressive state, that's a different reality. We don't live in that type of state now where people are going to like execute you if you pray, right? No, you're going to be able to pray. Go, you want to fast Ramadan? Go fast Ramadan. You want to have a mosque, a masjid? Go have a masjid. So where is this contradiction going to take place in terms of what I'm supposed to do as a Muslim? The way I'm supposed to operate is the way a Muslim is supposed to operate, right? So if you have a specific example, you can ask it. But in general, the individual practices of a Muslim in Sharia are all afforded to me, uh, that, you know, as an individual. I'm not a statesperson. I'm not a head of state. I'm not a governor. I'm not a minister. I'm not a kada. I'm not a, a person in the judicial system. As a Muslim, I can fully and freely function as a Muslim in this society. As for example, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, no, I, th this is the way that, like, like so, 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 so for example, there are certain work-related realities that make, and then we're going to talk about this in the last session, like the last session, like, so there are certain things that are complicated, like, say, for example, I want to become a doctor, right? Technically, um, as a Muslim, I cannot uh, treat someone or be treated by someone of the opposite gender unless there is a need. When would there be a need? If there is no doctor of the same gender, or the one that is of the same gender is not of the same level of expertise and proficiency. Now, of course, in our society, where there is great um, um, interaction between genders, this is impossible. Um, as a doctor, can you say, I will only see female patients? No. Uh, you'd get lawsuits, uh, probably, if you do that. And uh, as a patient, you may be able to demand that you get a female doctor that may be afforded to you sometimes and sometimes in certain situations. So it's more, it's more, uh, cap it's more um, likely to conform to it as a patient. 
But even then, sometimes, according to Sharia, you would be able to break it out of this rule if, for example, the one that is available to you as the opposite gender is more proficient or is the one that's more accessible based on whatever your financial realities or whatever else it is. But anyway, as a patient, it's much more easy to do. That's just one example. There's many other examples where you talk about the workplace and the work environment where you would need to come to terms with things that don't necessarily sit well, Islamically speaking. And that's what we're going to talk about more in the last session when I come to implementing Islamic uh, fiqh in my life how can I reconcile between these realities? Inshallah, the last session we'll talk about that more. Uh, you have a question? Yes. During what? Yes. So look, uh, when, they, when they came up with 500 verses or um, uh, 10%, they surveyed what was revealed. Allah revealed it. Allah revealed it, right? So Allah revealed all of these verses. They went back to all of the verses. They found that they counted them. You know, when you count these verses at the 6,000 plus, right? 6,000 plus. They found that the ones that are directly relating to matters of law reach this number, Right? So they didn't make these verses. Allah made them, right? So, so they just went and surveyed and analyzed the Quran. This happened, in, and then there's, you know, in tafsir, this became a genre of tafsir. That where some, some scholars, they only wrote tafsir ayat al-ahkam. Giving explanation to the verses pertaining to law, right? So that's, uh, so again, so it's, it's all by Allah. But they just went and analyzed the verses and they counted which ones relate to inheritance, which ones relate to um, uh, prayer, which ones relate to this and that, and then that's the number that they came up with. Scholars of tafsir. Scholars of tafsir. Later on. Who's the names who wrote in Ayat al-Ahkam? So the scholars, so what you're going to learn is all of these sciences developed slowly um, based on need. So like, for example, during the time of the Prophet, was there a single fiqh book? No. There was no, there was no need for a fiqh book during the time of the Prophet. Was there any tafsir book? No. All of this stuff happened across the decades and the centuries afterwards. So, for example, the greatest monumental work in tafsir cover to cover uh, was Tabari, Imam Tabari, Al-Jami' Al-Ahkam Al-Quran. Right or la'ali al-bayan, sorry, la'ali al-bayan fi ta'wili ayat al-Quran. This is tafsir tabari. This was a few centuries later, sister. So, but before that, people would do tafsir on certain subjects, right? And this is, you know, there's no point in even mentioning the names. This is like a whole like historical database and chronology of many, many scholars who wrote in different fields, right? Yes, go ahead. Yes? We're going to learn in this section right now. Right? So let's take one more question and then we'll go into the sunnah. Yes? 
in this order, sorry. So the order that we have of the Qur'an from Fatiha to Nas is actually by revelations, by the Prophet it, During his lifetime, this was spelled out. Um, the names of the chapters was also by the Prophet The addition of vowels was not needed. So it's like a crutch. Like So for example, um, uh, you know in an English dictionary when you would have, um, uh, the, what do they say, those uh, breaking down the syllables of a word in a dictionary? Like how do you pronounce this word? That's what, that's what harakas do. They help you pronounce the word properly. But, you know, if I am someone um, who uh, knows English proficiently, am I going to need those, um, that breakdown? Of course not. I'm not going to look at the word garage, for example, and accidentally say garag, all right? Or garage. No, I know how to say it. I was born, I am, I am, um, this language comes to me uh, by birth, from my birth, from my upbringing, right? So I know it saliqatan, by nature. I don't need to go back to basic grammatic rulings to pronounce every little thing, right? I would need that for Arabic, for example, if I'm non-Arab, uh, you know, but someone who was born Arab would not even need those vowels. So, so this claim, I don't think that's the claim, that's not the issue. Like with the diacritic marks, the Fatha Dhamma, Kasra, these things, they were not needed by the Arabs. The Arabs were an unlettered people. They didn't depend on writing, right? They had it memorized within them. And so, so, that's, so that's, that's also partially here. And, and again, like now, you're talking about a generation that had a lot of infighting between them at certain points. They were literally at war with each other during the time of Sayyidina Uthman and Ali. You're going to tell me, O Orientalists, that this generation began and ended without there being conflict and feuding about the verses of the Qur'an. Okay, they, they somehow managed to fight about everything else to the point where they were raising the swords to each other. Yet they could not dispute about a single verse of the Qur'an. It was memorized in their hearts and preserved letter by letter. Uh, now... Uh, you, so the, the default is something is flawed, is, is, uh, something is sound. I need to prove it's flawed. So this is the way that I was also... So there's, there's, this, there's this very fundamental principle in law that we follow, right? Innocent until proven guilty, right? Right? The proof is needed by those who claim. You claim the Qur'an is tempered with... Prove it to me. I just gave you generational evidence by, by um, hundreds and thousands upon individuals who have it memorized and have it written. And you don't find any contradiction between what they're narrating. And you're going to come and claim to me that you conveniently don't agree that this has been preserved. You bring me the evidence, right? That's what I would say to them. Bring me the evidence of its temperament. Every evidence that you that they will possibly bring could easily be dismantled by someone who's an expert in this regard, right? Do you, do you have any? Is it clarify for you? Okay, Zakallah khair. All right, let's let's go on. The Sunnah. Um, the Sunnah. What is the Sunnah? What does Sunnah mean? It means a path or way, whether it's good or bad. The Quran says it. It, it uses it in this linguistic way, um, as you see here. In Surah Ali Imran, verse 137, it says, Similar situations have passed on before you. So proceed throughout the earth and observe how was the end of those who denied. What does it say? 
in the Arabic verse, it says, Sunnata, man qad arsalna qablaka rusulina. Right? All right, this is our established ways for those who we sent before you among the messengers. And you will not find, So sunnah means way, path, right? It means, and that's why the Prophet says in the hadith, whoever starts in Islam a good practice, whoever starts a good practice, meaning a good sunnah, a good path, a good way, a good, good, a good, good, a good action, and is emulated by others in doing so, he will get the reward of it, and the reward of all those who act upon it without their rewards diminishing in the slightest. Right? So this is another usage of the term sunnah linguistically. Another usage of it this is the last one. In every deed, there is a peak followed by lassitude. Right? So the Prophet says, for every act, there is a peak. And then there is a period of lassitude and weakness. So it says, فَمَنْ كَانَتْ فَتْرَتُهُ إِلَى سُنَّتِي فَقَدْ Whoever is period of lassitude and weakness is according to my sunnah, he is successful. He will be indeed successful. And whoever it was to another way, um, it, he will be indeed a failure. So, that is, so again, this is the term sunnah in language. What does it technically mean? Here, this technical definition is broken down um, uh, here. All statements, actions, approvals, and attributes, whether physical or moral, ascribed to the Prophet whether before or after the beginning of his prophethood. It's a very technical definition. It includes for us different categories that are going to come up right now, inshallah. Sunnah, again, has been used in the Qur'an. Sunnah is used to refer to wisdom, right? Sunnah is used to refer to wisdom, right? So, um, uh, hikmah in Arabic, right? Uh, um, رَبَّنَا وَبْعَثْ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ يَتْلُوْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِكَ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Right? Send among them a messenger who will teach them your, recite to them your verses, teach them your book, and teach them the wisdom. What is the wisdom? That's the sunnah. That's a Quranic reference for sunnah in the Quran. It's referred to as the wisdom. Alright. So sunnah means statements, actions, approvals, attributes. We have four categories, right? What's the explanation of these? Many of the things that we perceive as... So we have the term sunnah, and then we have the term hadith, right? <coughs> sunnah is this general term. It's used in different ways, right? So here, follow along with me, guys. Sunnah linguistically means what? Path. All right. Sunnah could also be used to refer to the second source of Islamic law. That's one. The second source of Islamic law. Su Quran and Sunnah, right? Sunnah, this is number two. Sunnah could also be used to refer to hadith, synonymous with hadith. When it's synonymous with hadith, it includes these things. Sunnah synonymous with hadith, synonym with hadith refers to the Prophet's actions, his statements, his approvals, right? His attributes, all of this falls under sunnah. When it's a synonym with hadith. Good? 
A third usage of the term sunnah is when it is the opposite of bid'ah, innovation. That's in matters of creed. Matters of so it's an innovation, meaning an invented matter, something that's foreign to the corpus of teachings in Islam. It's foreign to Islamic law. And then uh, sunnah is meaning that it is a foundation. It has a foundation and a basis in Islamic law. Right? Sunnah and bid'ah. Sunnah and bid'ah. Do we understand the usages, the three usages I just mentioned to you for the term sunnah? You understand it? Everyone's following along with me? Right? Good. What's an example of a statement? A man said to the messenger, Sallallahu advise me. The Prophet Sallallahu said, don't get angry. And the man repeated the question again and thrice. And the Prophet Sallallahu said to him again and a third time, do not get angry. Right? Actions. Like what? When the Prophet Sallallahu directed us to observe his manner of prayers. Right? The Prophet Sallallahu showed us how to make wudu. His actions. Right? The Prophet showed us how to do hajj when he said, Right? So this statement is directing us to observe his actions. Right? So that's an action, example of an action. What's an example of an approval? This is during the Battle of Al Ahzab. When the Prophet told the companions, None of you should pray Asr until you reach the neighborhood of Bani Quraiva. These are a group of uh, these are a group of people who committed an act of treachery and betrayal. Uh, during the battle of Al-Hazab. So some of the companions actually waited till they got to the area of Bani Quraiva to pray Asr, and they missed Asr time. And others realized the Prophet wasn't being literal. So they decided to pray on the way. And the Prophet approved of the actions of both. Some of those who stuck to the letter of what he said, and others who understood the meaning of behind what he was saying, which is what? Hasten and hurry up. This is critical to understand because we're going to find that this actually led to the foundations of two main schools of thought that we're going to learn about in today's session. What are they? Ahlul Hadith, Ahlul Ra'i. The scholars, the people of Hadith and the people of, uh, of opinion. Now, of course... When you make it seem like that, opinion, hadith, which one do you want to be part of? Which one do you want to be part of? Hadith? But this is not meant to be understood like that. It's not like, oh, these are the good people, these are the bad people. Right? The people of Ra'i were not people against hadith. Right? But there were a people who pursued reason behind textual evidences. Right? People of hadith were people who stuck to the wording of textual evidence. It's critical to understand this. Because the, the foundations... Uh, for the, the, the school of Ahl al-Ra'i were found in two of the companions of the Prophet Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab uh, he is a fiqih someone of deep understanding and his fiqh, the fiqh of Umar led to what founded Madrasat Ahl al-Ra'i followed by Ibn Mas'ud Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud who is also according to this school Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas on the other hand was very committed to the letter of the law. He was someone who was deeply committed to following the form and the wording and the direct actions of the Prophet ﷺ. Would someone dare say that Ibn Abbas is better than Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab? Would anyone dare say this? No one would dare say this because we know that Sayyidina Umar was the Prophet ﷺ's right hand after Abu Bakr. And Sayyidina Umar was far superior in Iman 
and in position and authority than Sayyidina Ibn Abbas, right? Even though Ibn Abbas is of immense status and greatness, right? So this is important to understand this. Approvals, physical description. A person asked Jabir, was the Prophet Sallallahu face as bright as the sword? Sayyidina Jabir said, no. It was round and like the sun and the moon, right? Beautiful, the Prophet Sallallahu They would say that his face would light up like the moon on the night of a full moon. Beautiful to learn about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Inshallah, we're going to actually be doing this in the next intensive, more. Where that's going to be with next weekend with uh, Sheikh Yasser and Prophetic Living. Uh, it's next Sunday uh, in ICPC Patterson. I'll also be with him. Inshallah Ta'ala, we're going to be reflecting more deeply on the khasa'is and the special and new characteristics of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? Uh, you, you, you have a question? Can you just hold it for a second? Um, yeah, so the physical description of the Prophet Sallallahu is uh, mentioned here. The character description is, whenever the Prophet Sallallahu was given a choice between two matters, he would always choose the easier as long as it was not sinful to do so. That's a critical detail, right? <laughs> um, as long as it's not sinful to do so. He wouldn't always choose what's easier. Uh, he would only do that is when, it's, when it wasn't sinful to do so. He never took revenge upon anybody for his own sake, but when Allah's boundaries were breached, he would take revenge for Allah's sake. So this is all showing us about the sunnah. Now the relationship of the sunnah and the Qur'an, it's threefold. Threefold, look at this. The sunnah sometimes affirms the teachings of the Qur'an. That's one. And sometimes it clarifies the Qur'an. That's two. And sometimes it set up independent legislation. That's three. Sometimes it's set up independent legislation, that's three. Okay? And here, the following slides, they're all clarifying to you through example. Right? Alright? Like we already gave the example of salah. Where's salah in the Quran? The, the zakah, where's zakah in the Quran? Hajj, where's hajj in the Quran? Very, very general, universal terminology. You will not find details of these matters in the Quran. Right? Clarifying what's misunderstood. Specifying the general terms of things, right? Explaining the meaning behind it. All of this is, these are examples. You could read them on your own um, for things that, uh, you know, describe the relationship between the Quran and the Sunnah. So that's pretty much what we have about the Sunnah. And again, just going back to the book, you'll find on page 59, it starts. It goes over the usages of the term Sunnah on page 59. 60 and, 60 and 61, and then on page 62, it tells us about the Prophet Sallallahu ijtihad, how the Prophet Sallallahu sometimes would use his own discretion in issuing legal rulings, right? And he gives some examples of this. The Prophet Sallallahu used his own discretion in Badr uh, with the prisoners of Badr, and he also uses, uh, he also uses own discretion um, uh, in, uh, in, in other situations that he mentions here as well. Uh, so that's what he goes over on page 62. 63 and 64 is him speaking about the hujjiyya um, of the sunnah. The, 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 the sunnah being as a, um, the evidence that the sunnah is an authority. How did the companions preserve the sunnah? We're going to talk about this now. So he said, he tells us a little bit about the methodology of the companions. How was the sunnah inscribed and written down? How was the sunnah inscribed and written down? 
And that pretty much ends up and wraps up the section on page uh, 68. And then, he, and then in the next section, unit 3, page 71, he starts off by speaking about fiqh during the time of the companions. We're going to stop for salah in five more minutes, inshallah. I know it's time for salah, but we're just going to take five more minutes and then we'll actually pray uh, Maghrib bi ta'ala. Here, I want you, we're going to come back to this slide here, the, this, uh, the stages of the evolution of fiqh. We'll come back to it, page, uh, slide 59. Slide 60 tells us about the methodology of the companions with the sunnah, right? May Allah have mercy on one who hears something from me and communicates it to others exactly as you heard it. The Prophet ﷺ told the companions to learn the sunnah. Let those present inform those who are absent, right? He also said, it is enough of a lie for one to speak of all that he hears, meaning be very careful and mindful of what you communicate in terms of guidance from me, right? So the methodology of the companions was guided by these hadiths. To the extent that Sayyidina Umar and his, and his partner, his business partner, they would take turns in being in the presence of the Prophet Again, it's like, you, you wouldn't imagine that, right? You would imagine Sayyidina Umar, he's sitting by the Prophet 24 hours a day. But that was not the case. He would actually, um, uh, he would actually take turns with his business partner. One day, he would go be the buyer by the Prophet And then he would come back and tell his business partner everything that happened. And the other day, his business partner would go and learn from the Prophet ﷺ and come and inform Sayyidina Umar about what happened. Um, how did the companions receive the sunnah? Well, it was in this manner. They were very keen on asking the Prophet ﷺ questions. To the extent that the Prophet ﷺ prohibited them from asking. He did not want them to be overwhelmed by the, the cleef and the accountability that would come about from them asking questions. Because if they asked the question, they got the answer, and now they have to follow because the Prophet said it. Right? So he did not want them. They would actually wait for people to come outside from outside of Medina so that they could take advantage of their presence. Those people will ask the Prophet questions, and they would listen in very carefully. The companions were very keen on learning every single word from the Prophet they could. But here, look at this hadith here. This is a critical hadith to understand. The Prophet said, its hadith is in Muslim, do not write anything from me, from me. Whoever has written anything from me other than the Qur'an, let him erase it. And narrate from me. Uh, uh, for there is nothing wrong with that. So the, why, why is the Prophet ﷺ telling them don't narrate, don't, don't write down things from me? He did not want his hadiths to get confused with the wordings of the Qur'an. This is a general statement. We find... However, that the Prophet ﷺ designated multiple individuals to write his hadiths. He didn't want the general populace of the companions to focus on his hadith so that they don't confuse it with the Qur'an. But at the same time, he said, narrate from me, for there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that comes out of my mouth but the truth. Uh, so in the end of his life, the Prophet ﷺ changed his stance on this and he wanted them to write uh, and he said, bring for me paper. I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. And then the Prophet ﷺ fell severely ill and he passed away before he actually did that. The companions had a great level of reverence and commitment to the message of the Prophet ﷺ. To the extent that they even revered the Prophet ﷺ after he passed away. Again, for those coming in, inshallah, we're going to stop in about 2-3 minutes and we're going to pray Salat al-Maghrib, inshallah. So... There was a man, there was two people that came from Ta'if and they were speaking loudly in the presence of the grave of the Prophet Sallallahu 
So Sayyidina Umar got so angry. He called them over and he said, where are you from? They said, we're from Ta'if. He said, had you been from the people of Medina, I would have struck you. I would have beaten you for raising your, your voices in the presence of the Prophet Sallallahu Because they were speaking loudly next to his grave and you need to be very... This is, my, this is a reminder for everyone going for Hajj or Umrah. Be very respectful in the mosque of the Prophet Sallallahu and in the presence of the grave. Respecting the Prophet Sallallahu after he passed away is just like respecting him when he was alive. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So... So this is how the, this was the companion sentiment towards the Prophet. They loved him. They revered him. They learned from him. Everything. Now, here are critical takeaways from this. Now, when it comes to the methodology of the companions in narrating the Sunnah, it follows four principles. One is minimal narration. Because what? They didn't just narrate anything. They wanted to be very sure about what they were narrating from the Prophet. Precaution in accepting narrations. Three, critical assessment of transmissions. And four, travel. These are the four critical things that we find in the example of the companions. And we're going to actually speak about this more. So we're going we're gonna to actually mention this tail end of uh, the, the lives of the companions and how they taught us and they taught later generations to communicate the sunnah and to communicate knowledge of Islam in general. We're going to speak a little bit about this and then we're going to be going to the next generation after that, the successors. But inshallah we're going to stop here um, for uh, Salat al-Maghrib. A sister who had the question, was it a quick one or should we leave it till after Salah? After Salah. So after Salah, if you had questions on what we discussed so far, we will continue with that bidnillahi ta'ala. Uh, Jazakumullah khair and we'll stop here for uh, this session. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.